0: Okay, just to give you guys a little bit uh, of an update about a few things. Uh, first of all, inshallah ta'ala, as you know, we have only a couple of weeks left and then we will be taking a break for the summer, inshallah ta'ala. We have listened to a lot of feedback uh, from the uh, the the people who come to Essentials. Inshallah ta'ala, we will try in the future not to have this time after Ramadan where it is... Uh, you know where it's very difficult for people uh, to be able to attend and the numbers are quite low and stuff like that inshallah um, inshallah ta'ala today we will finish whatever we finish from al-warakat and then we're going to stop and we will then go on inshallah to uh, talk about al-qawaid al fiqhiyah that's the external speaker it's only that one. That's something from this. It's only internal. It's something they've, maybe something, no, maybe something they've changed. We haven't touched. InshaAllah Taala, once we have finished. The. Uh, uh, the explanation today, we won't be finishing Al Waraqat forever. We'll come back to it, inshallah. But one of the things, inshallah, we will do uh, is we will move on to Al Qawaid Al Fiqhiyah. We'll move on to Al Qawaid Al Fiqhiyah, inshallah, which are basically fundamental rules, fundamental principles, things in fiqh that you can just use across the board, you know, like generic principles that just work for, for, for everything in every situation. Uh, and those are really helpful. Uh, a couple of words I would say about all of these Usul al fiqh and the other related subjects are not the easiest subject or subjects to do to study in Islam. There's no doubt about that. They're not the easiest subjects to study. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to note on that. I think first of all, is that the essentials, we want you guys to be something different to just, you know, like the people who come on the Friday nights, you know, and that means you have to study some things that are not always thoroughly entertaining and are not sometimes, you know, like as easy to study as others. Uh, But it's important to get that balance of all of those subjects so that you feel, inshallah, that you really have studied uh, a good sort of base from which you can understand how the rulings of Islam actually work and how the rules of Islam actually work. I think the other thing is that, inshallah, with the essentials, we have such a varied number of uh, of uh, of courses or of topics and subjects that inshallah if one subject is a little difficult the next one will be easier inshallah i mean personally i find al qawaid al fiqhiyah that we're going to do next week to be much much easier than usul al fiqh uh, but you know each each person will find you know easy what they or, or will enjoy more what they enjoy but it's really important for everyone to work really hard so that we can, inshallah, get everybody to, you know, get the maximum out of this and really understand how the rulings of Islam work. And the Arabs, they used to say for a long time, is a long famous ancient saying of the Arabs, man jadda wajad, the one who works hard, that person will get what they earned. They'll, they'll, get the, they'll get the fruits of their labor, you know. So it is sometimes difficult. Sometimes it happens that some subjects are not as easy as others. Uh, you may feel that some subjects are not as relevant to your life as others, but at the end of the day, Islam is made up of more than one piece of, it, of a jigsaw puzzle. It's made up of lots of small ones, and you have to do all of them to get a balance. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that balance. You know, you might know everything there is to need to know about being good to your family or about, you know, how to be a good father to your kids or how to be a good mother to your kids or whatever it may be. But likewise, at the same time, you may also find that you might not know much about what Allah Azzawajal has made obligatory for you and hasn't. Or you might not know much about how rulings apply when you can't apply them like what do you do when you can't pray standing up what do you do when you can't get pure for the salah and other things so at the end of the day we have to have that balance like when I was studying in Medina there are subjects that I really enjoyed and there are subjects that I didn't enjoy so much there are subjects I enjoyed but found extremely difficult and there are subjects that I found a little bit easier and but we'll try to sort of adapt that as much as we can. But what I wanted to kind of conclude out of this is inshallah ta'ala, when we restart in September, we are going to uh, make a number of changes, inshallah, to try to make it even easier for you know, everyone to kind of join this program and to benefit from it, inshallah. Um, we were just finishing commands. And if you remember, and I'll just get to my page. If you remember, we said that commands and prohibitions are one of the most important parts of Usul al Fiqh because ultimately. No, not no. Uh, Commands and prohibitions are one of the most important parts of Usul al Fiqh because essentially. Islam is about doing things. Islam is not about a belief that you keep in your heart and you say, oh, you know, like, my heart is Muslim. Islam is about doing things. Islam is about acting on things. Oh, we just fix a, an audio issue before we start. Better we fix them before we start and then then we can get going. because I'm not speaking loud enough. Since you told me it was going outside, I took my no, voice. No. if you yeah. speak louder, maybe they can do different Okay, no problem, inshallah. We? we try our best, inshallah. I think the masjid made a, a change to their speaker system, and uh, it caused us some problems with people being able to hear who shouldn't be able to hear, and people who shouldn't be able to hear or who should be able to hear not being able to hear, so... It caused us some problems with the. They did some change to the, uh, maybe the volume or the speaker system or something like that. So, okay, let's uh, pick that up again. So, we said that the purpose of Islam is acting. Because at the end of the day, in the religion of Islam, you are required to do things and to abstain from things. That's that's the essence of the sharia at the end of the day the essence of the sharia is about doing stuff and not doing stuff you know worshipping Allah not worshipping anything besides Allah worshipping Allah not worshipping anything besides Allah eating halal food not eating haram food so since the sharia gives so much importance to the issue of commands of what you should do and what you shouldn't do since the sharia gives so much importance to the issue of commands then the issue of commands and prohibitions in Usul al fiqh is important we need to be able to recognize when Allah is commanding us and what that means for us. So now we come to this issue of repetition. And what this means is, when Allah tells you to do something, is the default position that you have to repeat it, or is the default position that it only needs to be done once? Now, someone might say, but okay, Allah commanded us to pray five times a day. Okay, but that is different when you have a command that says pray five times a day. For example, the Prophet ﷺ said, Five prayers in every day and night. So that's a different situation. But a general command. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you a general command. One of the general things that we spoke about in the previous lesson. Does that mean that we have to do it once and if we do it once we've done what we need to do or does that mean that we have to do it again and again and it's only if Allah tells us to do it once that we do it once in other words for example take the example of Hajj Allah told us وَلِلَّهِ عَلَى النَّاسِ to Allah and from the people is the obligation or to Allah for the people is the obligation of performing Hajj to the sacred house. Would the basic principle from the Hajj be that we should do Hajj every year. But it's only because the Prophet said once in a lifetime that we do it once in a lifetime. Or is the basic principle from a command that we only do it once unless the sharia tells us to do it again Al-Juwayni rahimahullah ta'ala said wala yaqtadi at tikrar 'ala as-sahih illa idha dalla ad-dalil ala qasd at He said Commands do not entail repetition according to the correct opinion now whenever you hear the words according to the correct opinion pay attention because that means that there is a disagreement among the scholars otherwise he wouldn't say according to the correct opinion unless there is an evidence which indicates that you should intend repetition you should repeat the action over and over again the correct answer, in my opinion, and Allah Jal knows best, is the opposite to what Al-Juwaini chose. That the basic principle of the commands in the Sharia of Islam is that they are to be repeated, and only when Allah tells you that they don't need to be repeated are they, you know, are they to be done once. Because if you think about it, think of all of think of any command you can think of in the quran try and find me a command that you only do once it's extraordinarily difficult Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la says perform the prayer and give the zakah does that mean we only have to perform the prayer once in our lifetime no we said Five times every day. Okay. The Zakat. Once in a lifetime? No. Once every year. Ya ayyuha al amanu, kutiba alaykumu al siyam, kama kutiba al ladhina min qablikum. O you who believe, fasting has been made obligatory for you as it was made obligatory for those who came before you. Once in a lifetime, one day out of Ramadan, one Ramadan in your life, or every time? Every single time. وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ Ihsana, Be good to your parents. Once in your life or every time? Then find me a command that you only have to do once. And you can be said to be a good Muslim if you only did it once. Apart from hajj it's extraordinarily difficult to find a command which if you did it once you would be considered to be a good practicing muslim from all the examples we covered it's very very hard to find something which if you did it once something obligatory you have to do it and if you did it once that would be enough to make you a good Muslim. Why then does Al-Juwaini take this opposite opinion despite the overwhelming body of evidence that the commands do repeat? By the way, Al-Juwaini believes you have to pray five times a day and you have to fast Ramadan every year. There is no issue with that. What he's coming from is the original Arabic. He's saying in the original Arabic, in original Arabic command. When I say to you, "Come, stand up. When I say to someone, "Come, stand up. The basic principle from that is I only want them to stand up once, not every time, you know, for the next, like every time they see me, they should stand up. They said, you said to me, Kum, last week. You know, two months ago, you said to me, Kum, so now every time I see you, I stand up. Where did Al-Juwaini go wrong? Al-Juwaini went wrong by applying a principle of Arabic language directly to the Qur'an without taking in mind or bearing in mind the proper Islamic context. In other words, yes, Al-Juwaini, we all agree that if I say to someone, Ijlis, sit down, I mean sit down, One time, not sit down every time and don't ever stand up again. However, in the Sharia, when we look at the Quran, we see that it is not the same thing. The Qur'an's the commands of the Quran, the commands of the Sunnah are all intended to be repeated as often as is required, unless there is a specific evidence not to do so. Even Hajj is not a good example, since it is recommended to repeat Hajj for those who are able, based upon the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Tabi'u al Hajj Follow up Hajj after you know Hajj after Hajj and Umrah after Umrah. Follow a hajj with another hajj and an umrah with another umrah, and whenever you're able to do so. So, what we see here is that the commands in Islam of the Quran are not enough to be done once. You can't say I prayed one day in my life, and therefore I am implementing or I have implemented the statement of Allah wa aqimus You can't say I gave zakah one year, so I am implementing the statement of Allah wa atu zakah. I was good to my parents one time so I have implemented walidaini ihsana, and so on rather the commands of the sharia the default and remember we're talking about the default there are always exceptions to the rule but we're talking about the The default position, the position that we have when we come across a command is that this command is to be done as often as is legislated in the Sharia in terms of, you know, is it to be done every day, whenever you see them, you know, like five times a day, one time a year. It is to be done repeatedly, again and again and again. The next thing that al-juwaini comes to talk about, So another interesting thing relating to commands, is do you have to do them quickly? Uh, what that means is, or immediately, that's a better word than quickly, let's use the word immediately. Al-juwaini says, rahimahullah, wala yaqtadi al-fawr. He said, commands are not, ne- are not necessary to be implemented immediately. Why did Al-Jawaini say this? Again, he went back to the original Arabic language. And the Arabs say that the imperative, the imperative is the tense that means do something, sit down, stand up. The imperative doesn't include a time frame. So when you give someone, an, you know, generally when, you know, an imperative in Arabic, it doesn't include a time frame. You, you know, for example, you could say to them, uh, be good to your parents you say to your brother you know you should be good to your parents be good to your parents this doesn't have a time frame in it and it's not telling you you know, should be, you should go right back to your parents right this moment in this second and you must now be good to your parents it's just telling you you know like when you next get the opportunity do this that's kind of what Aljuwani is saying so when you get the opportunity, do this. Again, the uh, person, the uh, sheikh who is explaining the text, he says, Allah. He says, With regard to the Arabic language, this is correct. Because... The imperative tense in Arabic does not have a specific place in it or a specific time. Meaning there's no like, I mean, when you say to someone something in Arabic, a command, there's no, I mean, there's no time attached to it, there's no place attached to it. If they were to do that at any time, you could say that they fulfilled your, your command. Maybe you could say they, did, they didn't get the context right because you said to them, stand up, and they said, okay, you know, 10 minutes later, they stand up. But in terms of just taking the box, I mean, you told them to stand up, and eventually, they stood up. However, there is no doubt that when we look at Islamic legislation, the situation is again very different. And again, I feel that Al-Juwaini here, Rahimahullah, got it wrong. And actually, the commands of the Sharia are to be implemented with haste. And in other words, you do them as quickly as is possible. However, if we look at commands in Islam, we actually see that the commands in the Qur'an and the Sunnah are of two types. They are either unrestricted in time or restricted in time. So there are some commands that are unrestricted in time. Okay? Did Allah tell you, be good to your parents on a Friday after the sun sets? Allah told you generally be good to your parents. He didn't give you a specific time. So we would call this a command which is unrestricted by time. And then there are commands which are restricted by time. Pray Dhuhr. Shall we pray it now? It's too early to pray Dhuhr now. Now the time for Dhuhr hasn't come in. Make Hajj. Didn't you hear that Allah said, وَلِلَّهِ nasi Hijul bait? Why haven't you made Hajj yet? Because the time for Hajj hasn't come about yet. So Hajj is an example of something which is restricted by time. As for the one that is unrestricted by time, then there is no doubt that if you look at the Sharia, you are required to do them right away. And even if you look at a general life, you know, if you say to your son, for example, go bring me a glass of water, and he brings you a glass of water an hour later, you're gonna say to him, okay, you did what I said, but you're hardly, you know, like, you're not where you should be, you know, I should have had that glass of water within a minute of me saying to you, not within an hour. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to you, be good to your parents, and you say, Okay, I've scheduled that in my diary for some time in twenty eighteen. Yes, you are fulfilling the command eventually, but you're also committing a, a sin if you're not being good to them in that time. So there's no doubt that commands that are general, that are unrestricted by time, you have to do them as quickly as possible. As for those that are restricted by time, as soon as their time comes about, you have to do them as quickly as possible too. So if you imagine that uh, someone says, for example, with regard to Hajj, Hajj is restricted by time. You can only do it at at, at one, one month in a year, it's the only time you can do Hajj. But what do you think about a person who has had the money to go to Hajj for 20 years, had the opportunity, visa is available, everything, but hasn't been to Hajj yet. Would you say that they are negligent? So at the end of the day, there's a difference between what might be technically true. And this is another problem with al Kalam, which we said that Al Juwaini was so famous for, rhetoric or philosophy, that these guys are looking at the technical nature of the language But they're not interested in actually what you have to do. You know there's so much interest in technically, okay, in a technical sense a a command in Arabic doesn't mean you have to do it again and again. In a technical sense a command in Arabic doesn't mean you have to do it immediately. But you know, just take the example in real life, when you say to somebody, could you be quiet please? and then half an hour later they stop talking and say well you told me to be quiet so now i'm quiet technically you would say okay you know technically you've ticked the box but really did you do what i asked you to do no you might do that with a human being and it would be rude you might do it with a human being but how about the person who does that with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of the day the one of the biggest problems we have among this kind of this field, this you know rhetoric and philosophy, is that these guys are so focused on the wood that they can't, or so focused on the wood they can't see the trees. You know, like they're just like they they they're focusing on something, and they're missing uh, the the bigger picture. Like, when, or when people say you can't see the wood for the trees, you're like you are focusing on something, but you you're not focusing on the bigger picture. You're focusing on the small detail. You're focusing on a technical, grammatical meaning of a word which you know probably applies in logical terms. But in reality, what does Allah want you to do when he says, وَبِلْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Does he want you to be good to your parents five years later or he wants you to be good to your parents right this minute now? He wants you to be good to your parents right this minute now. There's no doubt about that and so this is another example for me of being very very logical but also illogical at the same time logical in the sense of okay you know what you said is technically true technically true but it's in terms of the spirit of islam it isn't and maybe i don't know if we'll do it in the essentials cuz another it's another topic related to usul al fiqh but it's it's a topic which people find pretty hard and i'm i'm not i haven't scheduled it into the into the plan yet but there's a topic called maqasid al-sharia or al-maqasid al-sharia or maqasid al-sharia it's known as al-maqasid and basically this talks about the purposes of islamic legislation And what some people have taken to do, especially from some of the later, um, I'll use the word scholars in a very broad sense of the word, Uh, later people who claimed to be scholars, Uh, people who are not, not good scholars, not reliable scholars, but people who you know, were, are recognized in the world for being scholars. One of the things that they took to doing is that they would use the purposes of Islamic legislation to justify all kinds of haram by saying that, well, Islam wants things to be easy for you. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with free mixing because Allah said, يُرِيدُ bikum al Yusr. Allah wants to make things easy for you. So they've taken a valid point. Allah wants to make things easy for you. The sharia is based upon ease. The Prophet ﷺ said, الدينو يسر. This religion is ease. And then what they do is they apply that in a very narrow kind of technical way to something and say, okay, there's nothing wrong with taking a mortgage, a riba-based mortgage because there's a need and it's difficult and you know, Allah wants to make things easy for you. I'm, I'm simplifying it rather than giving you the complicated. There, there are other things, but you get the idea. They take something that's a valid principle, one of the principles of the sharia is we always try to make it easy for people, but they have ignored the spirit of the law. And this is a, like a, a term you hear in, in legal terms as well, like in, in law, the spirit of the law. You know, forget the words, you know, you're like, you're, you're going, you know, here and here. But what's the spirit? I mean, what, does, what does Allah actually want you to do? You know, you've said, okay, I've read the Quran. The Quran is in Arabic and it says I have to be good to my parents. So I'm planning when I reach 60 years old that I'm going to be good to my parents. And I've done what the Quran said. Okay, in terms of words, I, 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 you know, you can tick the box. But in terms of the spirit of the law, have you done what Allah wants you to do or not? Clearly you haven't done what Allah wants you to do. You've done what you can say is the, you know, the, the words. And from this is where we get the issue of loopholes. As you know, I have lots to say about Islamic banking. Bit of an oxymoron, Islamic banking. Uh, Because actually, really, those two should go together, but often don't. Uh, But a lot of Islamic banking today, not all, but a lot, is based upon the concept of loopholes. It's based on following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And i give you an example of that. There's a very famous river trade mentioned in the books of fiqh where basically what you do is you get a third party involved. I sell some goods to him, and he sells some goods to you, and then he, you agree to sell it back to me, so there's a little triangle going on. We all agree this up front. Each transaction is a standard sale. There's no loan involved, there's no whatever involved. You know, A so transaction is a standard sale, but it's done in such a way That basically someone gets money as a like as a loan like what in order to buy that product from that person and they pay back more money than the money that they took if you look at that transaction in the letter of the law in terms of individual parts of it it doesn't break any rules okay someone is given an advance on a product meaning i give you a product to sell and i tell you you can pay me back later don't worry and then separate day another day another place you sell that product to someone else and there's all sorts of stuff going around but ask those three people why are you involved in this transaction and if you cut open their hearts and look inside they say we're involved in this transaction because we want to get profit on a loan I want to give someone a loan. I want to give someone a loan for more money than the money that I give to them. I want riba from it, basically. I want riba. I want to give them a loan for more money than I gave to them. I want more money back than I gave. But I want to do it in a way that doesn't contradict the letter of the law. the actual individual letters of the Quran, it doesn't contradict of course it does actually if you look at it in reality of course it contradicts the quran but if you kind of put the right lens on it and you you know you don't tell everyone that you know the three of them have all agreed for a river transaction i said what's what you mean it's just a sale you know he gave me some product he told me pay me back in six months time i sold this product to some other guy and then this other guy sold it uh, back to him and then i gave this guy the money back and But the point is, these three people had all got together with the deliberate intention of a RIBA-based loan. It's not like three different people, three different transactions. This is all arranged long before. In fact, it has a broker, and the broker says, I'll sort you out a RIBA-based loan. Interest rate will be 5% APR per year. All you have to do is buy this crate of sugar from somebody and then he will sell this crate of sugar to me and then I will buy this crate of sugar and there's your loan, all done. You know, and all we're doing is buying and selling sugar. You know, like nobody nobody did anything haram. The point is that those people know clearly that they are contradicting the Quran. They know what they are doing is a major sin. And this finding of loopholes in the Sharia is not permissible. The, the greatest kind of musiba unfortunately, is that some of the scholars in some of the Madahib, and it's a minority opinion, mostly in the Hanafi madhab, allowed this kind of, trans- kind of loopholes, finding loopholes in the Sharia. And that has meant that things like Islamic banking are able to thrive. By finding scholars to advise those banks who personally believe that it's permissible to cheat Allah and to cheat the Sharia and therefore they believe that they can as long as individually when you take snapshots it looks okay nobody wrote riba on the paper anywhere nobody wrote faida on the paper anywhere no problem go ahead and you know sign it because nobody wrote riba anyway, it's okay. We wrote murabaha, or we wrote mudaraba, we wrote like musharaka, or we wrote ijar, or we wrote some nice Arabic words on there instead of riba. So you just take the paper, it will be fine. But it's all based on this concept of loopholes. So it's really important, my, my, my point in this, it's really important that you understand the sharia in the context of what Allah Azza wa wants you to do not that you try to find a path around the words try to kind of like you know say well I did it like this I did Allah wants you to be good to your parents all the time Allah wants you to start being good to your parents as soon as you are aware that is an Islamic obligation that's the end of it don't try and find loopholes and ways out of things there are two things we must avoid in the religion of Islam one of them is we must avoid this issue of leniency and making loopholes and trying to you know this like trying to find gaps and holes in things. And the second thing we must try to avoid is extremism and harshness and severity. And that's why it's so hard because most people you see will go like a pendulum. You know, you see the guy comes in one day and he's so strict. Everything is strict and everything is haram and everything is, you know, like... And then you see him you know, two months later and sadly you see this person has lost all of the outward signs of practicing Islam and is now saying well, you know, uh, free mixing is a necessity and I have a mortgage because you only need one and you know, I took this, uh, this loan which is haram because it didn't say the word riba on the paper when I signed it and so on and so forth We've got to avoid this pendulum swing between being overly lenient and being overly strict. And again, I want to really clarify that. When I say overly strict, I don't mean overly strict is implementing everything in Islam. Implementing everything in Islam is the middle path. Overly strict is implementing things in Islam that Allah didn't tell you to implement. Like Allah said, وَرَحْبَانِيَّتَنِبْ This monasticism they had, like locking themselves in monasteries, ibtaduha. It was a bid'ah that they made. We never commanded them to do it. When the Christian monks locked themselves in monasteries and forbade themselves marriage, and forbade themselves uh, rich food, and forbade themselves anything except woolen, uh, thick cloth like the monks. And they used to lock themselves away. This was a bid'ah, an innovation that they invented. As Allah said, Wa ma We never commanded them to do this. So this is extremism in the religion. The Prophet ﷺ said, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالْغُلُوُّ Keep away from extremism, exaggeration in the religion. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, ad yusr, the religion is ease. And nobody tries to make the religion hard for himself, except that the religion defeats him. So it's not practicing Islam that's extreme. I, people will say, you know, like, oh, you know, like, you should just keep your beard, you know, like, just keep a thin beard, because that's in the middle, between having no beard and having an Islamic be it. That's not, that's not what we mean. That's not what we mean. That's leniency. You, but doing something that Allah has not commanded you to do, doing something that is beyond what Allah has asked you to do, that is ghulu. That's extremism. And that destroyed the people who came before us. Likewise, this idea of leniency and trying to be very technical and trying to escape the sharia by finding logical sort of excuses. Again, it doesn't work with Allah Azzawajal. It might work with a human being, it might work with you know British tax law, that I found a loophole where I can say that, you know, my business is based on some island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and actually I'm not actually trading anything like you know for example I know these big companies like you have Google who say that we, ha- we haven't made a single profit in the UK in anything for the last like 50 years uh, because all of their profit goes to some small island in the Caribbean somewhere you can do that with human beings but you can't do that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to do it towards Allah and towards Islam is a big big sin to turn towards Allah and to say, hey, you told me to pray, I prayed once, okay? Why am I getting punished for? You can't behave like that towards Allah Azza wa Jal and towards the sharia of Islam. And of course, that's not what Al-Juwaini himself is suggesting, but it's a danger that comes from people who study sometimes these texts. That's why I spent so long to talk about it today because I feel that this is something that People sometimes study these texts by themselves and then get like, you know, a light bulb moment where they think, Ah, okay, I can do this. And they start to find a way of practicing Islam which isn't compatible with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. The next point regarding commands, which Al-Juwaini mentioned, is extremely important as well. He says, an obligatory command to do something, we have been commanded to do that, and whatever we need to achieve that. So when you get a command to do something, we have been commanded to do that thing, and we have been commanded to do whatever is necessary to be able to do that thing. Uh, Such as being commanded to pray, this includes the command to purify yourself, which is required in order to pray. There's maybe an easier way of, of saying this. مَا لَا يَتِمُّ الْوَاجِبُ إِلَّا بِهِ فَهُوَ وَاجِبُ Whatever it is that is needed to complete something wajib is in itself wajib. And whatever is needed to complete something mustahab or mandoob is itself mandoob. And whatever leads you and takes you to commit something haram is itself haram. And whatever leads you and takes you to committing something makruh is itself makruh. This is absolutely fundamental and uh, it's one of the principles of fiqh that we probably will talk about in the coming weeks inshallah but it is fundamental whatever is needed to complete something wajib is wajib and this in itself answers for you so many common misconceptions that people have. One of them that people often talk about, for example, people often talk about uh, free mixing. As an example, people often talk about uh, free mixing. Where is free mixing made haram in the Qur'an? This alone that we've studied now is enough to answer that question. Okay. So what is wajib? For example, lowering the gaze is wajib. So everything that is necessary to facilitate lowering the gaze is in itself wajib to zina is haram everything which leads to zina is also haram this principle is so so fundamental to the rules and laws of Islam you need something to be able to do an action to be able to perform something you need a particular action to do that then that action takes the same ruling as the thing that you are, or this has the same level of command or prohibition as the thing that, you know, as the original action in the first place. And the example that Al Juwaini gives us, an excellent example, the example of the prayer. وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَةِ Perform the prayer. You can't perform the prayer without tahara. You can't perform the prayer without purification. Therefore, purification has the same ruling as the prayer. The same ruling, the same position, the same status as the prayer because it is Something which is necessary to complete a wajib. Whatever is necessary to complete a wajib is in itself wajib. And so if I am going to, just going back to that previous topic, if I am going to implement the command, "Wala zina," Do not come close to fornication. Then that means that I, in order not to come close, there are certain fundamental things that I need to have in place. There needs to be gender segregation because otherwise I cannot fall under that command of Allah Azza wa Jal. It's impossible for me to do so. People might say I can do it, but that would be a claim that has very little basis in terms of the whole of humanity. And if you put someone in a, any, a room full of, uh, of uh, the opposite gender, any, and they're freely mixing, chatting, staring in each other's eyes, you know, sharing each other's Instagram posts and whatever, at the end of the day, that person cannot reasonably be expected to implement the command of Allah, wala تَقَرَبُوا zina, Do not come close to a zina. Nor can they be reasonably expected to lower their gaze. That's not the only evidence for that, by the way, because you have the evidence of the action of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. But that's a, the point is that this alone is, a, is enough to answer so many misconceptions people have in their lives today about why is this haram? Why is this wajib? I don't, I don't see it written in the Qur'an. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to teach you usul al-fiqh uh, generally and, and principles of the sharia. I want you to understand that there's a whole bunch of things that are clearly wajib which are not written in the Quran. Because they are either things by which we need to complete another wajib or you know something similar to that, like rule the, the rules that we are covering right now. We need something, you know, we need purification to be able to perform our prayer. Therefore, Allah doesn't need us to command. O you who believe, make wudu. It's not needed. He only needs to say, O oh, you who believe, establish the prayer. And included in that is, get yourself clean, don't be filthy, don't have a bad smell, uh, you know, don't um, wear clothes that have impurities on them, uh, don't uh, you know, make sure that you have ghusl, make sure that you have a wudu, and so on. So what we see from this is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has out of his infinite wisdom, he sometimes speaks in very short words with very significant meanings. And if you want to link that back to the lesson we did on tafsir, if you remember the statement of Allah, Ya iyyuhaladina Amanu, Awfu bil Rukut, all you who believe. Fulfill your obligations, your oaths, your promises, your agreements. SubhanAllah. Like if you think about that, and then you think about all the things that are necessary to fulfill that command. That's a command. And that command, what did we say? at tikrar Means you have to do it always. You can't just do it once. Always you have to be fulfilling your agreements. al fawr You have to do it right away. Okay, you have to do it right away. Stop that. You have to do it right away. And you have to do it all the time. And Allah tells us, fulfill all of your agreements, promises, oaths, and conditions, and contracts. There's a lot of things became wajib when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya أَيُّهَا amanu آمَنُوا أَوْفُوا because so many things are required to fulfill that condition. So inshallah this is something that we should, uh, we should certainly bear in mind. there is one uh, or one or two sort of uh, little points we should make at the end of the command before we talk about prohibitions we should talk about uh, a principle again we're going to cover this inshallah ta'ala in the coming weeks which is the principle فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ Fear Allah as much as you can. Or to be more precise in the translation, protect Allah, protect yourself from punishment as much as you can. I really do believe that the correct translation of the word taqwa should be protect yourself from punishment. So protect yourself from punishment as much as you can. When Allah commands you to protect yourself from punishment as much as you can, that tells us that commands are dependent upon ability. And we have in this a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, in the 40 hadith of Imam al Nawawi it's mentioned, مَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ وَمَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَاجْتَنِبُوا وَمَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَأْتُوا مِنْهُ مَاسْتَطَعْتُمْ Whatever I forbid you from, keep away from it. And whatever I tell you to do, do as much of it as you are able to do. And that tells us that a person may be commanded to perform purification and may not be able to perform purification. You have a patient on a hospital bed in a serious condition. And that patient is not pure. They are, you know, going to the, to the bathroom. Uh, they are not able to go to the bathroom physically, so they have like a, a tray or a pot. And, uh, you know, obviously they are not clean, they are not pure. Uh, the nurse maybe changes the pot and takes the pot away or something and puts a clean pot, but they are not, according to Islamic standards, pure. What do we say to them? Do we say to them, now you don't pray, because prayer requires purification, and you're not pure. No, we say to them, "Fetta kullaha, mastatatu." Protect yourself from punishment as much as you are able. So, if it is possible for the nurse to come at the prayer time and clean you, and get you ready for the prayer, and help you to either make wudu or to make tayammum, alhamdulillah if it's not possible this person had a car crash and lying like you know and they can't move even to yammum and they they may be not even in a muslim country no one's going to come and get them what do we say to them we say to them pray as you are pray as you are and don't worry about it your prayer will be accepted because you did as much as you could you did as much as you could now as much as you could doesn't mean emotionally as much as you could Right? Like a lot of people think when you say as much as you could, it's an emotional thing. It's as much as you know, like, oh man, I, I could only pray four prayers today because Allah is so tired, at Isha time. man. like that's not as much as you could. It's a physical ability question. I mean, as much as you were physically able to do. Like that person, and this has happened many times, we've had this situation in the UK of of uh, times when the Person or elderly person, for example, in hospital, and they are not able to get up to make wudu, and the visiting hours, the hospital does not allow the relatives to come and make and and, and purify them for the salah. Maximum you can get them to do is they agree to take away the waste uh, like papers or the waste towel before the salah. That's all they will do. And you tell the person, you know, if they are able to make tayammum, they make tayammum. If they're not able to make tayammum, They pray as they are because they did the most that they were physically able to do. And so we have to bear in mind that this is uh, something uh, important as it relates to commands. The next thing that Al-Juwaini mentions, also on the topic of commands, and it's also very important. If the command is done, if the person does it, they no longer have the burden of that command on their shoulders. Now, here we're not talking about repeating or not repeating. We're talking about the, the individual action. So, you had to pray Dhuhr today, you pray dhuhr today, you no longer have to pray dhuhr again and it's been lifted, the burden has been lifted uh, from your shoulders. The question we have to ask is when is the burden lifted? And if the burden is lifted, or the responsibility is lifted I mean, like if it's ticked on my list, does that mean that I was rewarded or not? Two questions. Both of them, very important, very relevant for what we're doing. When is the burden lifted? The burden is lifted. When I do the action in the way that Allah commanded me to do it. So I pray dhuhr without invalidating my prayer. What did we call this in usul al-fiqh? Remember back to the categories we did, wajib and all the rest. Then we did the other ones. We did as-sihah wal-fasad. Validity and invalidity. Something being valid or something being invalid if I do my prayer in a valid way, I no longer have that responsibility on my shoulders. And the fact that I didn't do it really well, or the fact that I didn't, you know, do it in the most complete way, doesn't mean that I need to repeat it. The reality is there is no link between validity or no link, But there is, a, there is no direct one-to-one relationship between validity and reward. And that's what I wanted to explain to you in this point. And it's, for me, it's important. There's no direct link between validity and reward. Meaning that you can do your prayer in a way that is valid and get zero reward for it this has so many applications let me just give you one very common misconception whoever drinks alcohol his prayer will not be accepted for 40 days it's common thing people talk about that his prayer will not be accepted for 40 days whoever goes to the magician or the fortune teller believing in him, his prayer will not be accepted for 40 days. Okay, does that mean that he doesn't pray or that he does pray? Okay, I I read a horoscope in the newspaper. Does that mean that now for 40 days I don't pray? That's not gonna get me anywhere. In fact, that's gonna get me closer towards the magicians. Rather, the person prays, however, they receive no reward for their prayer. They receive validity. Their prayer is valid. The angel writes down, so-and-so prayed. Reward, zero. And so there is a difference between something being lifted from your shoulders as a responsibility and you getting reward for it. It has lots and lots of applications. You feel you prayed a bad prayer at Dhuhr, you know, you came to Dhuhr and you just weren't thinking about it. And you prayed, I mean, you prayed your your ruku and your sujood, you did it, you know, but you just felt like you weren't there. It may be that you got 10% of the reward. Maybe you got nothing, maybe you got 20%, maybe you got 50%. But the responsibility was lifted from your shoulders if you did it in a valid way. Yes, if you were so distant that you don't remember what you even prayed or whether you prayed, that could affect the validity of the prayer. But as long as you did the prayer in a way that was valid in itself... You did the prayer in a way that was valid in itself. The prayer is written in your account that you prayed. However, whether you got 100% of reward, or 50, or 70, or 20, or 10, that is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, depending on how well you prayed, how much concentration you had, and so on. So a lot of people, might say you know like for example it's very common sadly on this whole alcohol thing a lot of people will say for example you know i have a problem i slip into this from time to time so i don't pray because allah will not accept it from me you have to be very careful about what the meaning of acceptance is yes you may not get reward but at least that prayer will be lifted as a responsibility from your shoulder. Meaning you have, you at least reach equilibrium. You at least reach like a level point where you prayed, you are still considered to be a musalli, someone who prays. You're not considered to be someone who abandoned the prayer, but you you didn't get reward for it. That's a big problem, not getting reward for it, but at least you prayed. As opposed to the one who, doesn't pray and this person no doubt is in a far worse situation and may in fact leave the religion of Islam so we need to understand that when you do an action in the way Allah has commanded you to do it that action is lifted from your burden it is no longer in your it's no longer a responsibility that you have to carry out once you've done it in according to the you know the set number of times or whatever, you each time you do it, the burden is lifted. However, that doesn't mean that you got rewarded for it, or that it was necessarily accepted by Allah in terms of you were rewarded and you were, uh, you know, you, you got the benefit out of it. A person may pray and get very little of the benefits of the prayer out of their prayer. But at least they are considered to be a person who prays. So, of course we want to be from the people who get the maximum benefit, we want to get the full acceptance, we want to get the full reward, but at the end of the day, we still recognize that once you do something, it's done. You know, like some people, for example, when they go to Hajj, they will go to Hajj, and they will say, you know, I had an argument maybe with someone and I feel like my hajj hasn't been accepted and now I have to go to hajj next year. No, that's not the case. Your hajj, in the sense that you did the pillars of the hajj, is, is written, you, you no longer have to make hajj. Whether Allah Azzawajal rewarded you for it with Jannah or not, that is in the hands of Allah. You, make, you repent, you ask Allah to forgive you, you do a good deed, you try to get it, except that's, that's a different issue. But you don't have to repeat the hajj next year. You did your hajj, you stood in Arafat, you did all the pillars that you needed to do. At the end of the day, that is enough for you not to need to go to hajj again. Whether it was given Jannah for it or not, that is a different matter. And that matter is you know, in the hands of... Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala The next thing that Al-Juwaini deals with is who is included and who isn't in the commands of Allah Azza wa Jal. who is included and who isn't in the commands of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala so for example when Allah says wa who has to pray and who doesn't have to pray al-juwayni ta'ala says included In those whom Allah is speaking to in His commands are the believers as for the one who forgets and the child below puberty and the one who is insane they are not included in those that Allah is addressing so let's look at that issue so this is the issue of who is included in the group that Allah addresses with His commands And the correct answer is to say, in commands and prohibitions, the servants of Allah who are included are those who have intellect. They are able to understand. They they are aqil. They are able to understand the command. So that excludes who? That excludes the insane person. And the insane person may be temporarily insane or permanently insane. <inaudible> temporarily insane, as in maybe uh, they and I mean by insanity we have to be, be be a little bit wider. It's not just insanity, but anything which makes you lose your mind. You know, they could be having an epileptic fit or they a seizure. They are no longer they are no longer in possession of their faculties they're no longer in possession of their faculties for a period of time that might be an hour, might be 20 minutes might be 30 minutes might be days, months years, It might be a lifetime (laughs) Baalighan someone who has reached puberty and the opposite of that is the child below puberty now does that mean that we don't tell our young children to be good to their parents? No, but we are talking about who is included in the obligation from the point of view of it being sinful for them if they were to disobey Allah Azzawajal. As for the children, we can say that the majority of the commands are recommended in their in their in their sort of uh, in their right, like when we, talk to, when we talk about them, most of them are recommended, and we command our children to do them by means of, tra- or, or by way of training. The purpose of me telling my child at seven years old to pray is first of all that prayer is, of course, uh, the child who, who is aware of what they are doing are rewarded, is rewarded for the prayer. But why do I tell my child to pray at seven when he's not sinful until he reaches, example, fourteen fifteen? Why tell him at seven? Because if I don't tell him at seven, it will not be possible for him to learn to pray by 14 in a regular, in a regular way. And this brings us back to the previous issue of, يَتِمُّ الْوَاجِبُ إِلَّا فهو واجب. If I'm gonna say to a girl, you know, subhanAllah, like, uh, there's a 12-year-old girl. And she starts her menses and then on that day I, I bring her a hijab and say, okay, now hijab, abaya, niqab, don't go out of the house. And this is your, now that's it. She's going to be shocked. Like, you've took me from here to to here. Like, where? What happened? So it's not possible to fulfill that wajib without giving her those things Prior to that happening it's not possible to fulfill that wajib but the general wajib itself and if a girl was wearing her hijab my daughter for example she's wearing a hijab 7 years old she takes a hijab off is that a problem? is she sinful? no why do I you know, gently encourage her to do it. Not every time, not all the time, but just keep. You know, slowly. Each 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 kind of year we go by, it gets a bit more. It gets a bit stricter, because at the end of the day, I don't have a guarantee. She might become an adult at nine years old. She might become an adult at ten years old. She might become an adult at twelve years old. An average for a girl is something like twelve or thirteen. For a guy, is about fifteen years old. So at the end of the day, you've got to. Still tell your children to do the right thing, otherwise, when they reach adulthood, they will not be able to do that thing. But they themselves, as individuals, are not included in the command that if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you, and if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you. They are included from another angle, which is the angle of everything needed to complete an obligation. An obligation is itself an obligation. So, you know, the fact the Prophet commanded us, tell your children to pray from seven and chastise them if they don't pray from ten. That's a command from the Prophet. But is that child, if they miss then at seven years old or eight years old, they miss a salah, are they then sinful? No, they're not sinful. They're not sinful until they reach puberty. But the danger is that if we give them bad habits now, those bad habits will continue after puberty. And in fact become much worse Because the influence of the shaitan Will become much stronger On them uh, at that time And remember It's not like good, their prayers are being wasted As long as they are At an age of discernment The age of discernment Is what we call in Arabic Tamiyiz It's where you know what you're doing You know what you're you know what you doing It's basically this issue of Aqil versus Ghaira Aqil I mean, you, you that you get to an age where a child knows that they are praying take a two year old child do they know what they 're praying do they know how many raka'at they pray do they know you know most two year old children don 't know what they are praying agreed most two year old children don 't don't i mean they they copy you they make sujud and they then they get up and run around they make sujud the wrong way they you know they put their um, you know, the wrong clothes on. They, they do all sorts of things, you know, because they don't know what they're doing. But take them to five years old, six years old, and now they know what a prayer is. They know what the start of the prayer is. They know what the end of the prayer is. At that age, they become rewarded for their prayers. Their prayers are, they are rewarded for them. Okay, what about the two-year-old? Any reward in that? There's reward for the parent who is, who is raising them in a good way to gently encourage them and stuff, definitely. But they themselves have no consciousness of what they are doing. So the child who has reached the age of discernment, or tamyiz, what we call tiflun mumayiz, a child who knows what they are doing, could be five years old, six years old, four years old, depends on the child. They are rewarded for the good deeds they do. When they are good to their parents, they get reward. When they are good to their siblings, they get reward. When they give charity, they, give, they get reward. As long as they know what it is they are, they are doing. But it's, they're not included in the commands of the Qur'an. And our inclusion of them in those commands is only because they need to be taught and trained and helped as they grow older to make sure that they continue those deeds when they become obligatory upon them. Qasidan lil imtithal or Qasidan al Qasidan imtithal is something that the explainer of the text added in there. He said that they should be from those people whom Allah is intending to address. And this is much more comprehensive. I like this better than Al Juwaini's. Uh, like issue of the mu'minoon and, and the believers and whatever because when Allah addresses a group of women, for example the wives of the Prophet. Ya Nisa un Nabi, for example, or wives of the the Prophet. Sallallahu alayhi sallam wa radiallahu anhun. Who is included in those in that command? All of us, our wives, perhaps from the point of view of following them or recommendation, maybe, perhaps from the point of view of, you know, but directly who is included? Whoever it was that Allah is addressing. So if Allah is addressing the believers as a whole, then the command is for the believers as a whole, except those people who are not, have no knowledge of what they are doing, they are not aqil, they have no intellect, they have no they do not have their senses, and those people who have not reached puberty. So this is a better way of putting it, three conditions. The first one is that the person should have possession of their faculties, they should have control of their mind. The second one, they should be above the age of puberty. And the third one, they should be among those whom Allah is addre- is intending to address by this particular command. Whether it's for all... Now, I agree with Al-Juwaini, ta'ala, that the majority of the commands in the Qur'an are for all of the believers. That's the principle. And there's a very important principle we will learn, inshallah, which is that the general principle in commands is that they are for all of the believers, men and women, unless there is a clear Reason to restrict them to one person rather than the other. Likewise, all of the commands given to the Prophet ﷺ are for his ummah, unless there is an evidence that it's only for him. So when Allah said, "Kull Allahu ahd," say, "Allahu ahad, Allah is one. qul is his command to one person, to the Prophet ﷺ. However, included in this is his ummah after him unless you have an evidence that it's only for him. So someone could come and say, I'm not going to say Allahu Ahad. I'm not going to say Qulhu Allahu Ahad. Because it's only addressed to one person, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Clearly it says Qul. It doesn't say Qulullahu Ahad. Qul, one person. And if it's one person in the Quran, it's it's the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's talking to him directly. You should say However every command which is for him is for his ummah after him as long as there is no evidence to restrict it likewise there are equality in commands in terms of gender unless you have an evidence so when Allah says wa aqimus salat is what you say to a group of men aqimus salat is what you say to a group of men. You can say it to men and women as well, of course. But you generally, the, the verb aqimu is what you say to a group of men. However, women are included because the principle is that women are the full sisters of men. As the Prophet SAW said, women are nothing more than the full sisters of men, meaning that everything that applies to men in the Qur'an applies to women unless you have and evidence O prophet say to your wives and your daughters and so on when he said what and to the women of the believers cover yourselves with your bodies does this include men or women no this is only to women what is the evidence that hijab is only for women the verb used is a verb which can only be used for women and the Prophet is commanded to say to his wives and his daughters and to the women of the believers, so this is an evidence to restrict it. Otherwise, every command in the Quran. The basic principle is it's for everybody, unless you have an evidence to restrict it. But the best way of defining who you're talking to or who Allah is addressing in the Quran is to simply say that those who are in possession of their faculties, you know, they're in control of their mind. Those who are above the age of puberty and those whom Allah has uh, or intends to address, include within the command. Whether that be all women, whether that be the believers, whether that be all of mankind, whether that be a group of men, whether that be the wives of the Prophet wasallam, whether that be a group of the companions, that is, inshallah, the basic uh, principle. I, I don't think that what he said contradicts what uh, Al-Juwayni said. Or oh, there's, a, sorry, we should mention one more condition: that the person uh, should, perhaps well, it's not a condition, but it's worth noting, that the person should be have the intention to fulfill the command the person should have the intention to fulfill the command because if somebody fulfills a command without intention they have to repeat that command again now what we mean by that is like they had no they had no intention to Uh, to do that thing and they did it by accident they had no food and they fasted the month of Ramadan because they just had no food I mean they, they didn't it wasn't that they were intending to fast Ramadan or they were gonna fast Ramadan they just didn't have any food for that month there was a famine and they fasted Ramadan we say to them you have to repeat the fasts of Ramadan we say to them you have to repeat all 30 days They didn't eat from the first day of Ramadan to the end of the 29th day they didn't eat anything because there was a famine and they didn't have any food they didn't eat they didn't drink during the day but they did not intend to fast Ramadan so we say to them repeat it again And that includes what Al-Juwaini said about the forgetful person Because the person who is in a state of forgetfulness doesn't know what they're doing They don't have any concept of the fact that they're fulfilling the commands of Allah or not fulfilling the commands of Allah And we're not talking about a person who's a little bit forgetful, like they switch off a bit in the prayer We're talking about somebody who, you know, doesn't remember where they were for the last 15 minutes That person can't be said to have deliberately and consciously intended to pray. Now we come to what is really quite a difficult issue and one that I have, uh, every time I come across it, it, uh, it, um, it gives me some difficulty. And that is the statement of Al-Juwaini, rahimullah wa ta'ala, wal bifuru' al-shara'i wa bima illa al-islam the disbelievers are required to fulfill the actions within Islam. Now فروع here means not Islam itself. It means like they're required to fast Ramadan they are required to pray five times a day, they are required to give zakah, and they are required to fulfill that thing for which it will be accepted by, which is Islam, meaning that first of all, we, you know before everything and above everything, they're required to be Muslim, but also they are required to fulfill the subsidiary, the, the secondary, Actions in Islam, like they are required to fast, they are required to pray, they are required to a hijab, and so on. Uh, Al-Juwayni gives the evidence for the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal "Qalu lam nakumin They said, "Why were you in the pe- why were you among the people of the Hellfire? We were not from the people who prayed." Surah Mudathir, Ayah Number Forty Three. We were not from the people who prayed. This is. A big issue and it's an interesting issue really uh, but it isn't uh, it isn't uh, the easiest one to explain let me give an example of this are you allowed to give a non-muslim food during the day in Ramadan according to the statement of Al Juwaini and it's the correct one inshallah you are not permitted to give food to a non-Muslim during the day in Ramadan because they are required to fast like you are required to fast but fasting will never be accepted from them until they become Muslim but still they are required to do it, they have been told by Allah to do it, and therefore, even though it will never be, it will never ever ever be uh, accepted from them unless they become Muslim. So there are two issues here. It will never be accepted from them until they become Muslim. So of course, that means becoming Muslim is the priority. But also, it means that you can't facilitate them to do anything haram, and you can't facilitate them to do something that would be haram for you. Like you can't sell them for example or allow them to eat pork or you can't you know like say okay here is your pork sandwich and my chicken sandwich even if you didn't buy it or you didn't make it because what is haram for you is haram for them and what is required from you is also required from them. You cannot give them food during the day in Ramadan you can't uh, I mean you can sell them food it's their fault if they eat it I mean but you can't Like for example you should close restaurants and stuff You can't like make fresh food that has to be eaten on the time Supermarkets not a problem Because it's each person's responsibility When they go out of the supermarket Whether they make the food then or they keep it until iftar But in terms of restaurants They should be closed during the day in Ramadan According to this opinion Because it's not permissible to sell food to the non-Muslims To consume during the day in Ramadan Let's look at this issue. First of all, we should say that the scholars unanimously agree that all of the non-Muslims are required to follow the essence of the Sharia, meaning to become Muslim. And all of them agree because the Sharia has two parts. Its, it's essence, it's core, the core of the Sharia and the, you can say like the outside of, the, you know, sort of the, the you can say the, the, the branches of the Sharia. We call it the core and the branches. The core of the Sharia is Islam. And every one of the scholars agrees that the non-Muslims are required to become Muslim. And all of us knew that already. The issue is, are they also required to do whatever else Allah commanded people to do in the Qur'an or they only commanded to become Muslim? Meaning, look, drink your alcohol, do what you want, eat in Ramadan, don't fast, don't pray, but you should become Muslim and when you become Muslim, you should pray and fast and whatever. Or is it the case that They are required to do everything we are, but that it won't be accepted from them. They'll never get any reward for it. They're required to do it, but they'll never get any reward for it unless they become Muslim. Two opinions from the scholars. The evidence given by Al-Juwaini, ayah number 42 and 43 from Surah Al-Muddathir, مَا سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرْ What put you into the burning fire? قَالُوا لم مِنَ المصلي. They said, we were not from those who prayed. And salah is a branch of Islam. It's not the core. The core of Islam is becoming Muslim. Salah is a, a branch, a, a part, a, like a subsidiary from that core, like a secondary level. The first thing, you have to become Muslim. Then after that is the salah. So they said that they came to Jahannam because they didn't implement the prayer. And the correct opinion is that which Al Juwaini mentioned. Uh, And that's what our scholars taught us and that is the opinion of uh, the majority of our scholars in our time is that the non-Muslims are required to do everything that we are there is no two-tier law system for the non-Muslims like they have one law and we have one law rather they are required to follow our laws and rules even though that will not be accepted from them so if they choose to eat in their homes that's their problem i mean it will never whether they eat or they don't it will not be accepted from them but they are not they do not are not allowed a two tier system where non-muslims are allowed to do this and muslims have to do something else rather they are required to follow all of the laws of islam both the core and the branches And it said uh. that there's an, well, there's, there's an important point we want to mention before this that. This, uh, the way this manifests itself is not that we invite them to the masjid to pray. Because this might come as a question. Someone might say, well, okay, they're required to pray. Why don't we invite them to the masjid to pray? Because we know that this prayer will not be accepted from them. If they were to come to the masjid to pray... And this command is a command related to the Akhirah, not related to the dunya. Meaning that, it's in, it's, that they will be asked in the dunya, why, they will be asked in the Akhirah, why did you not pray, even though they were not Muslim? They will be asked, why did you not give zakah? So we don't go around to the non-Muslims, saying to them, come and pray, come and fast. But we also don't make accommodation or facilitate them to do something which is haram for them. So distinguish between the two. We don't invite them to do a branch of Islam before we invite them to do the core of Islam. So we don't tell them, come and pray in the masjid. Just come and pray with us. You're not Muslim, but you know, you have to pray anyway. So it's one less punishment in the hellfire for you. So come and pray with us. We don't invite them to come and pray with us however we don't facilitate for them to do something which is forbidden for them so where this really shows is the forbidden things rather than the uh, the sort of the commands it shows in prohibitions more than commands because commands we don't go to the non-muslims and say give us your zakah because at the end of the day their wealth would not, is not, uh, or, or their charity is not accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until they become Muslim. We don't go to them and say, give the zakah. But at the same time, we don't facilitate for them to do something which is not allowed for the Muslims. So for example, we don't facilitate them. We don't tell them fast, Ram- fast the day of Ramadan. But we don't facilitate for them to eat Do we see the difference between that? We don't tell them, come, come, fast Ramadan, fast Ramadan, because you're know, you a non-Muslim and you're also being told to fast Ramadan. But we don't facilitate for them to eat at that time either. So we don't facilitate to them to do something haram because helping someone to do something which is, or facilitating someone. But in terms of inviting them, we invite them to do what? Did the Prophet ﷺ invite them to fast Ramadan? Did he invite them to pray? No, he invited them to become Muslim. And this might be the bit that kind of explains it. The key thing is that the reason why Allah is commanding them to do those things is to increase their punishment in the hereafter if they don't become Muslim. Because in the hereafter they will be punished for not praying, not giving zakah, not being good to their parents, not keeping themselves clean, and all of the other things dealing in riba, all of the other things, they will be punished for those things as well as for their disbelief. So we don't invite them to join us in the masjid, uh, like as in apart from da'wah, of course we invite them for da'wah, but we don't invite them like just, you know, come and pray in the saf with us. But what we do do is we don't facilitate for them to do haram on the argument that they are not Muslim, and so it's fine for them to eat, it's fine for them to drink alcohol, it's fine for them to fornicate, it's fine for them to do whatever. You know, at the end of the day, we hold them to the same rules and laws that we are held to. A couple of things on that uh, to add. The uh, one who is explaining here, he makes a couple of points. Uh, he says there are two issues here. First of all, he says that this issue, this last issue we've dealt with, is not a matter of usul al-fiqh. It's a matter of aqeedah more than it's a matter of uh, usul al-fiqh. I think it certainly has, an, even an it may not be from the core of usul al-fiqh, but I think it certainly has, it can be added as an appendix because you're talking about who a command is addressed to, um, yeah, it, it probably has an element. But yes, you can see why it's not part of the core of a al-fiqh. Because realistically, are we, what do we do with that knowledge about the non-Muslims in terms of them being required or not required? What does it affect whether something is halal or whether something is haram or whether something is required or not? It, it doesn't, it, it's not part of the core of our mission in studying Usul al Fiqh to know whether the non Muslims are required to follow the s- sort of subsequent or secondary parts of Islam or only the core. Okay. The second problem he has is he says this whole idea of separating. Things into core and into branches is something that was done by the people of philosophy and rhetoric in order to separate fiqh from aqeedah. And this is something we've heard a few times. And uh, it's, it's no doubt true that there is a big effort to separate aqeedah from fiqh. Now, I don't mean separate it logically in terms of like what we might do where we have a aqeedah lesson and we have a fiqh, but to truly separate it in the sense that it literally becomes an island and you have different scholars for one and different scholars for another completely. So if you look at the average Muslim, for example, a lot of people on the subcontinent, a lot of them will say, we are Hanafi in fiqh, Ash'ari in aqidah, Sufi in suluk. That is their like that is their standard. I mean, maybe they don't know. They probably just say you know Muslim. But I mean, if you if you actually ask their shaykh from any of these jama'at, the jama'at you know well-known jama'at and groups, they will say that we are Hanafi in fiqh. Ash'ari and Aqidah and Sufi in manners and zuhd and whatever. Leave the Sufi out of there. Let's just talk about Hanafi and Fiqh, Ash'ari and Aqidah. Why did they split between the two? Because they don't want to embrace the Aqidah of Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah. And they know that if they embrace the Aqidah of Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, they will have to follow the way of the early generations the companions and the way of the sunnah because they know that generally the aqeedah of Abu Hanifa was the aqeedah of al Sunnah we have some you know minor matters which everyone has uh, you know nobody is free of mistakes but at the end of the day the aqeedah of Abu Hanifa was the aqeedah of al Sunnah in general with regard apart from the you know issue of irja with in general his aqeedah was the aqeedah of al Sunnah so what do they want to do They want to run away from this issue very, very quickly. Because if they start following, and Abu Hanifa is Imam al azam you know, he's the greatest Imam from the Tabi'een, nobody else has anything like him, you know, and they praise him to such a level, say, okay, let's follow him in aqeedah. Abu Hanifa made takfir of the one who says Allah is everywhere, for example as is well known from him. And he, that the one who does not say Allah is above his arsh, according to Abu Hanifa, is not Muslim. Of course, that doesn't mean the ignorant people, but the person with knowledge who says Allah is not above his arsh, above the seven heavens, according to Abu Hanifa, is not a Muslim. They say, no, 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 He was an imam in fiqh, but not an imam in aqeedah. Why? Because they want to put a big, big axe and cut away aqeedah from fiqh, so that they can give you their aqeedah and still claim to follow al-imam al Avam, the greatest imam and so on. And one of the best arguments you can use against them is simply to say this, to just demonstrate how they are splitting between these issues and say to them, look, if you want to follow al-imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, then follow him, but follow him in what he taught together, all of it. Because he didn't teach fiqh, fiqh, fiqh And when someone asked him about aqeedah He said, I don't know who is Allah and what is Allah And I don't know any names of Allah, I'm jahil No, he, Abu Hanifa, taught aqeedah There is a book of aqeedah attributed to Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Even if you don't agree with uh, al-fiqh al-akbar This book by Abu Hanifa being his book Al-aqeedah al Al-tahawi at the beginning of his aqeedah says this is the aqeedah of Abu Hanifa and his students. That's one of his introductory points. The aqeedah of al-tahawiyyah is the aqeedah of Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah. Why don't they study aqeedah al Because they don't believe in what it contains. They don't agree with what it contains. When Abu Hanifa spoke against ilm al-kalam, when he spoke against rhetoric, when he said the people of rhetoric will never prosper, when he said if the hadith is authentic, this is my madhab. Or if my my statement contradicts the sunnah, throw my statement against the wall. And all of these statements that are reported, they say, no no, 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 no. We are Ash'ari and Aqeedah and Hanafi and Fiqh. And this division is something that is designed to take people away from the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. So yes, there's no harm in having Aqeedah lesson, Fiqh lesson, my teacher specialist in one, specialist in the other. But we don't make that slice where one is in one planet and one is in the other. Because ultimately when we do that, we remove ourselves from the early generations whose aqeedah was correct, who who were correct. Al-Imam Malik, what did he used to teach? Aqeedah and fiqh and usul and everything. And he like, you you know, he was an imam of hadith. Al-Imam Malik, many, many people don't know, they know him only for fiqh. He was an imam of hadith an imam of hadith to the point where if you were to ask some people one of the most famous namely the five most famous people in the science of hadith after the companions for sure Al-Imam Malik will be one of them Subhanallah an imam in hadith like to the level that he is like you know above you know the likes of Al-Bukhari and Muslim Al-Imam Malik in usul Al-Imam al-Shafi'i Al-Imam Malik, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, they all spoke in Usul, they all spoke in Fiqh, in Aqeedah Al-Imam Ahmed has a a book or books, any text written in Aqeedah, not not only in Fiqh, so this issue of just like breaking Islam up, now there's nothing wrong with saying like about the non-Muslims being addressed by either Islam or you know subsequent actions, that's not a problem, But just this kind of concept, he's just warning you, be careful. Because these people are always trying to chop up between Aqeedah and Fiqh. Because if they don't, then they have to come to the conclusion that all of their great scholars of Fiqh that they love so much were actually upon the Aqeedah of Ahl-Sunnah. And that's the problem they have. Is that the Ash'ari has to turn up, put his hand up and say, my Imam in Fiqh, my Imam in Usul, the one that I believe to be the greatest scholar that has ever lived, did not believe what I used to believe about Allah. And that is why they split between them. And they say, wow, look at the fiqh of Abu Hanifa. But they don't say, look at the belief of Abu Hanifa or the manners of Abu Hanifa. Even in manners, they say, we don't follow Abu Hanifa in manners. We follow Tasawwuf, Sufism, in manners. Was Abu Hanifa Sufi? No was not Sufi, not according to anyone, not even the Sufis claim that Abu Hanifa was Sufi and unless it's one of their silsilas that just goes up to, you know, Ali bin Abi Talib or the silsila of Sufism but nobody claims that he was either but it's all about splitting so you can get a piece of the pie like I can get a piece of the Abu Hanifa cake because I can claim that I only follow him in fiqh instead of saying that his belief and his manners and his other aspects were generally in accordance with the sunnah of the prophet so be careful about that uh, that splitting up uh, between the two Uh, the next topic is far too long to uh, uh, to begin here we're still on the topic of prohibitions and commands but that's as far as we got today but i did intend to take it a little more slowly we did discuss with the kalima's management team that we would try to take a bit more slowly, give you more practical examples inshallah. So we hope inshallah, that that was maybe a little less hard on you, a little easier to, to swallow. Usul al-fiqh, as I said to the guys earlier, is never the easiest thing to study. But really, you need it. You can't become a scholar or a serious student of knowledge, and I don't claim to be either of those two things but you can't claim to be a scholar or a serious student of knowledge without a al-fiqh it is absolutely essential so you just have to kind of grin and bear it if you find it hard but you will you know you will see the fruit of it in your life and in understanding what Allah is saying to you and i feel that when you read the quran now you should have a better understanding we haven't finished the book you should have a far better understanding of what Allah Azza wa Jal is addressing you with in terms of commands and prohibitions than you had before, and understand why something is allowed or not allowed, why something might be allowed even though it's not mentioned in the Quran or rejected even though it's not mentioned in the Quran, and you know have a better understanding of what is intended by these, uh, uh, you know these uh, commands and prohibitions in the Quran. inshallah uh, we will return to it. But uh, obviously, I don't want to give you like three months of usul al-fiqh or five months or six months of it in one go because it's, it's heavy, definitely. It's heavy to teach as well as to, to study. But inshallah, what we would like to do is just to start you off, give you the beginning, and then let you you know slowly kind of move on from there, bi-ithni Allah ta'ala. Um, Okay. Uh, few people, quite a lot of people asking about the Aqida 1 exam result Yes, it, uh, w- I understand that normally you would get it, you would have got it last week uh, The only reason it's delayed is only because we had a week for off for Eid, that's all So when we had a week off for Eid, everything gets shunted back one week, inshallah uh, But I'm hoping those results will be very, very quickly Inshallah, I don't want to say a number of hours or days But inshallah, very, very quickly those results will be with you, inshallah Uh, I am still planning to record videos to explain to you the exams Um, and pretty much that is most of those are most of the issues that I wanted uh, to deal with inshallah so I think we'll wrap it up there since it is exactly two minutes past eight and inshallah ta'ala we will resume next week with al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya general generic principles of fiqh sort of rules of fiqh or, or principles that work across the board. They can be used in any place and time and they kind of give you a lot of benefit for a small amount of study. So inshallah we'll do those for a couple of weeks. And we'll be basing that on the book Al-Qawaid Al-Fiqhiyyah by Al-Imam Al-Saadi, the same imam that we did the tafsir from. We'll be doing his book uh, on Al-Qawaid al Fiqhiyah, the general, I didn't call it juristic maxims, but that doesn't I think hawaid fiqhia makes it easier to understand than juristic maxims. But they're basically overriding rules that work across the whole scope of fiqh, inshallah. And that will finish us before we break up in the summer. Uh, As we did also say that we are working on revamping many areas of the essentials, inshallah. We are working on making it a nicer um, or an even better experience for everybody, inshallah. Uh, we're going to try and fix the scheduling so that it's less inconvenient, inshallah ta'ala. We're going to be making a lot of changes over the summer. So before we come back, just keep up to date with what goes on, keep up to date with the website and stuff, inshallah. We're hoping that we'll have some positive changes to announce uh, things to make it easier for everyone, inshallah. Jazakumullahu khayran, feekum.